0: Everybody, welcome back to the Be There and five podcast. I'm Kate Kennedy, your host. So for this week, I wasn't sure what I was gonna do. It was like Friday afternoon, and I spent a while like recording a Patreon for about like Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey, the Super Bowl, the Tortured Poets Society, like or department, sorry, all the things. And I put it on Patreon early. And then I was telling Courtney, like, I don't know, it's like a fun episode. Uh, maybe I'll just use it for the main feed. And she was like, um, yeah, you know. The problem is by the end you are yawning a lot and, you know, it's, like, it's it's a little more free form on Patreon, which which I love, which is great. Uh, the Part of the benefit of the paywall is you get a more unedited, uh, unproduced version for better or for worse. But I was like, yeah, maybe we're not going to do that. So anyway, then it was kind of like, I feel like it was meant to be because I was being interviewed for another podcast called Money with Katie, who is a creator that I'm new to. And she found me because of like the book and the podcast in like the past couple of weeks. She asked me to be on her show. We had such a fun conversation. She's so like just whip smart and so insightful in terms of the intersection of uh, money and finances with with pop culture, with women's issues, uh, among other things. And I asked her if she would just like stay on and record for my podcast and kind of continue the convo, hear more about her career and just have a general conversation, not about how you should spend or invest your money, but I kind of actually wanted to do an episode themed about like the noise I feel with money, the weirdness of money, the, the confusing ways I feel about capitalism. And I told her this. Whenever there's a podcast about like money, personal finance, or anything of the like, I absolutely will not listen, even if it's my most favorite person in the world, because I always have anxiety that I'm doing something wrong, that I should be saving more. I'm very turned off by financial buzzwords. In my experience, in my uh, dwindling boss babe days of despair, when I had no... Confidence and just needed answers and needed a check, and like it, somebody that told me they could make me money, I would you know follow them into the dark death cab for Katie I think i I just grew disenchanted with the category of like online finance content as a whole in a way that's like deeply unfair because what she's doing is genuinely helpful, and what people can do in this category is genuinely harmful because it can result in something very materially disastrous, which is your financial ruin and part of it like. I just get so many emails from people pitching themselves or their client as a guest. It truly is almost all it's almost always a person who's in like light work or manifesting or something or a dude who is giving like a thumbs up on a book cover about leadership or self-help or finance who is promising the absolute most. But like his veneers, his background and credentials are giving the least. Usually, what I call like park bench handsome, there's a level of interchangeability that I find shocking. Um, same applies to my other favorite, which is a personal injury attorney, Billboard Business Casual. I've also had like a few forms of outreach from like the broiest bros that ever broed, taking like a hyper masculine approach to talking about money. And I'll click on a link like of an example episode on YouTube, and it's like, Well, Gunda. Millions of Money Man Hour, hosted by Mikey and Maddie T on the Mega Mike, you feel me? And I'm like, what? No, I don't. I talk about American Girl dolls. I'm good. If we're going to allow a meathead on this podcast, it would need to come in a butcher box, not in the form of Mikey and Maddie T on the Mega Mike, you feel me? It's just like, if I see a quote that's like, if you want to get rich, you have to think rich. No U-turn. It's a category that I feel like can be very shamey, very male-dominated. A lot of advice can be very helpful and is important, especially, you know, as millennials and stuff with our questionable retirement situations, people like me that followed their dumb dreams and, you know, gave away their benefits and their space for both conversations. Like, you should leverage the system that exists that a lot of people don't know about, and we should be more financially literate. And financial literacy is so important, and anything that is historically gatekept or influences power dynamics and access to capital um, or otherwise, like I'm always very interested in pointing out these double standards for the greater good. I I really do see the need for communities that I, like the one Katie's created, where she's a writer who had her own passion for the topic and desire to use her skill set to make it accessible, became like a field expert in the realm of personal finance, like commentators, podcasters and journalists specialize in politics, tech, health and wellness, et cetera. And I just think it's so interesting how she pursued a personal passion and how knowledgeable she is and how even just going through her stuff in the brief time I've been exposed to it just makes so much more sense than any of the horribly dry uh, presentation I've seen to these topics elsewhere and I hate to admit it but that that does impact how a person like me learns or what catches my eye i just appreciate people who take the time to distill important dialogue in a digital form and especially in spaces that 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 lack transparency and i just thought she was a breath of fresh that actually is trying to educate people make quality content have nuanced discussions about the highly subjective nature of personal finances, all while being a gal that loves to talk about the economic power of women, which we love. And of course, you know, I'm going to disclaim the shit out of this. Inevitably, when you're listening to two people talking, they are going to be speaking from a place of their own circumstances. And the goal is never ever to exclude, uh, rather just to speak from experience. And honestly, this episode ended up being kind of vulnerable for me that like I spent a lot of time thinking about after because when she was asking me about, like, why I don't like to always engage with this type of content or financial stuff gives me anxiety. I just, I realized that, like, yeah, I, I'm i still very much constantly, like, panicked uh, and, and feeling like that place of, you know, scarcity is on the horizon from a situation I had in between the doormats and the podcast and the reality of self-employment is, like... You know your income for the next six to twelve months. Like, how the hell do you plan for your future? How the hell do you support your family? Since having a kid, I've spiraled. So I think this conversation just made me realize, like, yeah, I I think that I've been quite stressed about not knowing what a like my career looks like long term. This medium hasn't been around that long. Like, how do you know? Like, it, it's just it's hard for me to plan. And I think when I am in conversations where people are telling me about the necessity of planning and saving, and I have such a weird job where money ebbs and flows and a scarring experience that um you know makes me forever on high alert for the ebbs. I uh yeah, I just got some shit to work through guys. And maybe we'll talk about it sometime. So hope you enjoy this conversation. And sorry it's runs a little long, but we were having so much fun talking and I figured you can parse it out if you want to. And um yeah, if you are wanting more current pop culture, talk Taylor Swift, all that hear, you know, my thoughts on things like parsnip soup and bloggers in the English countryside living impossibly curated lives. That's all on Patreon, so you can go there. But for this week, please enjoy my conversation with Katie from Money with Katie. What I love about Liquid IV is that I listen to, you know, a lot of shows and those are always like, yeah, for a long weekend Liquid IV brings me back to life. And I'm like, yeah, totally. That's what I use it for too. No. Now my weekends are wild mostly because I have absolutely no control or predictability over uh, my free time based on how my child cooperates. And I am, you know, recording this ad in the middle of the night. What do I have next to me? Like what I Because yeah, weekends are for going wild, but wild looks different to everybody. And whether you're a little sleep deprived, you're hanging out with friends, staying up late. I, I've been seeing a lot of people bravely take up line dancing this week because of Beyonce. And I'm sure you could use the hydration. So regardless of what a long weekend looks like for you, when it's time to start another big week, celebrate Hydration Monday with Liquid IV. I know you guys have heard of this product. It's kind of a no-brainer. Like it's even endorsed by like the World Health Organization as a rehydration solution for places that have issues with access to water. And what's genuinely cool about this product is that it multiplies the effects. It makes your water go a bit farther because one stick in 16 ounces of water, Hydrates better than water alone with three times the electrolytes of the leading sports drink. No artificial sweeteners plus zero sugar in the sugar-free version. And there's eight vitamins and nutrients and non-GMO. It's just the most convenient on-the-go packaging, which is nice because usually I tend to feel the most depleted in need of hydration when I'm on the road. But I don't know if, you know, I know we're in... 40-ounce cup nation. But if you're feeling, you know, fatigued by having to consume such a large sum of water, consider a hydration multiplier. to <laughs> Cut down on the amount of liquid. We're actually very into the sugar-free versions in this household. The white peach, green grape, lemon lime. Highly recommend. Weekends are for going wild. Have a game plan for Monday with Liquid IV. Grab your Liquid IV hydration multiplier sugar-free in bulk nationwide at Costco, or get 20% off your first order when you go to liquidiv.com and use code There at checkout. That's 20% off your first order when you shop Superior Hydration today using promo code BETHEREIN5 at liquidiv.com. I love it. Katie's doing me a favor by coming on the podcast. Yet I'm turning this into a therapy session about the financial things that keep me up at night. But I hey, at least I'm still cozy because at night I'm sitting atop a Helix mattress. In fact, I'm sitting on one now in my office bed. The Helix lineup offers 20 unique mattresses including the award-winning Lux collection, the newly released Helix Elite collection, a mattress designed for big and tall sleepers, and even a mattress made just for kids. that I will definitely be getting Teddy because it works for little kids that are getting their big kid bed and then flips to be uh, a little softer because, you know, kid beds are kind of firm. In my office, I have one of their medium feel mattresses called the Midnight Lux that won the GQ Sleep Awards in 2023. Dang, I think that's the one this is. Because they they have so many different models for soft, medium, and firm feels. And beyond that, like, If you sleep on your back and stomach versus side, if you need lumbar support, all the things. In my other guest room, I have a Sunset. My husband and I have the Dusk lux, which is a hybrid of our interests, because when you take the Helix Sleep Quiz, it asks you, like, if your partner has preferences, to factor them in too, which is cool. It's, of course, vulnerable to buy something you've never sat on to sleep on, but the way you know which Helix works best for you and your body is to take the Helix Sleep Quiz and find your perfect mattress and under. Two minutes, and your personalized mattress is shipped straight to your door, free of charge. And they know there's no better way to try out a new mattress than by sleeping on it in your own home, so they offer a 100 night trial, a 10 to 15 year warranty to try out your new Helix mattress. And I feel like you know, mattresses are a big purchase that you'll have for a while. And it's funny, like out of all my advertisers, I feel like in person, like off the record, people are always like, "So is Helix that good?" Like do you have to say that because I've been wanting a mattress, I'm nervous, and I'm like, "Oh my God, no!" they're it's like actually that great. I guess what happens is when you need a mattress, there's so many companies people, and people do all this insane research and you kind of have no choice but to like go off of somebody's word. I swear to you, the quality is unmatched and I wouldn't have worked with them for this long if that wasn't the case. I genuinely think it's the most like foolproof company you could be ordering uh, a mattress from with their matching process, their variety of options, the speed and ease of shipping and their incredible policy that make it pretty low to no risk it's been recommended by you know doctors of sleep medicine as a go-to solution for improving your sleep i should go to one of those doctors helix is offering 20 percent off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners go to HelixSleep.com slash be there in five and use code helixpartner partner 20 this is their best offer yet and it won't last long with helix better sleep starts now All right. So Katie, I am brand new to your body of work. You found me Mm -hmm. the past couple of weeks and reached out to have me on your show earlier today. And you were so insightful and asked the best questions. And I have a series actually called Beth's in show where I interview Beth's And literally a couple hours ago, I was like, wait, you're a listener. You have a really interesting career and so many valuable things to say. Should we just like stay on the line and have you on my show this week and do a double feature? And um, yeah, thank you for being flexible and just spontaneously coming on my podcast. Welcome to the Be There in
1: 5 podcast, Katie. Thank you so much. It's a very generous (laughs) introduction considering you hopped onto mine and I said, listen, I'm fangirling. I'm obsessed. (laughs) So it's an honor to be here.
0: They love it. Well, okay. We just, we covered so much ground on your show. Can I point people to it now? Or when is that coming out?
1: Oh, thank you. That will be out March 6th. That will come out. And it's an episode that is more broadly about Women's power in the economy, and I thought Kate was the perfect guest for it because who better to talk about the economic viability of women's interests than someone who studies it for a living?
0: And even Taylor Swift was quoted saying that in her
1: recent time of
0: Person of the Year article. (laughs) I have all
1: three (laughs) covers outside of this room. I was like, yeah, I need the twenty-seven dollar commemorative package of these.
0: (laughs) That's amazing. Can you tell us? Tell me your story, your your career, how you got here, how you self-identify i know we both have like obscure internet career jobs that are hard to explain <laughs> so please take all the time you need
1: <laughs> oh my gosh thanks for that um <laughs> yes so i have a kind of cl- classic you know you actually it's kind of similar it's like I, I graduated with a pr degree from a big sec school so alabama i was in a sorority we want to talk oh my gosh Rush. Happy to talk Bama Rush. Happy to talk the machine. Uh, for Old listeners. row or new
0: row is obviously my first question. Old questions. row,
1: baby. T- try it <laughs> out or don't try at all. Um, <laughs> yes. So uh, under the Tuscaloosa son of it all. But I... Uh, <laughs> so I graduated with a PR degree. I kind of had this narrative in my head of like, okay, I'm destined to make $40,000 a year for the next decade because no one values this work. And I ended up going into a, a marketing job at Southwest Airlines in Dallas. So... It was a great experience. I loved that company. I loved working for an airline, but I always had this sense kind of kind of trite sense of like something's missing. I'm not living out <laughs> my purpose, which is kind of a uniquely millennial thing, but I experimented with a lot of different stuff. So I started teaching fitness on the side. I was a cycle instructor. I taught yoga sculpt. I taught a mat-based Pilates class. And for a while, I was like, maybe this is what I'm meant to do. Like, I really like teaching, but that didn't feel quite right either. Like, I wasn't a natural in the same way that some of my friends that did it were naturals, where, like, you would put them on that podium under the spotlight, and they just came alive. I think it was, like, the performing aspect of it that I liked. Yeah. But it's not quite the right channel. So I um I ended up getting really into personal finance kind of out of a matter of survival, which was that I was finally making money. I was fortunate not to have student loans because I had had a scholarship to Alabama because they're like please anyone who has gotten above the score on the ACT, please come to this school. I I didn't know anything about money management and I had been saving pretty well for about a year, but I was just kind of like Treading water, living paycheck to paycheck, based on discretionary spending, not out of any true like you know um, resource scarcity. I was very lucky in that way, but I just I didn't know what to do, and I started asking questions about investing to my male friends because that's who was talking about it, and. They would point me to resources here and there. And I started reading books about it and going down the rabbit hole. And I just there was something about personal finance that was so alluring to me and so exciting to me, which is weird because that's not what the reaction most people have. But it was like, wait, you're telling me that my money will make money for me and that there's a point beyond which you're kind of at a critical mass where it will generate It'll, it'll replenish itself faster than I'm using it? Like, what? It was just mind-boggling. So I really went deep in the, like, fire movement for a while. The financial independence, retire early. And I, I became really obsessed. And I did that for a couple years, just, like, taking it all in. And finally, during the pandemic, c- classic April 2020, it was like, I'm going to buy a domain. And moneywithkatie.com was available so, it's like, I'm just going to do it. And I remember the first day I sat down, still working at Southwest, still teaching cycle, but like, the, you know, we weren't going into the office. We weren't doing in person classes. And I had a lot of time on my hands. And I remember sitting down and being like, the intent was to buy the domain and then like go eat lunch. And I sat there, bought the domain, and then I looked up and like eight hours had passed and I had written like three posts and had already built the whole site. And I was like, whoa, I can't remember the last time I've been that just like, lost in something or felt that mm-hmm. in flow yeah. state was something. It was effortless. Mm-hmm. And that was a clue that like, you should keep doing this. And it wasn't until I was interviewing for a position at Nerd Wallet that I really wanted. And like, at the time I made 60K and- the job paid eighty k, and I was like, "Holy shit! I can't even imagine what people do with eighty thousand dollars." I mean, the the opulence of that—like, right. you can buy appetizers, you get a mortgage. Like, it just seemed unthinkable. And I made it all the way to the end of the interview process, and they picked the other person. And they were like, mm-hmm. "You don't have the domain experience for this." And I was like, "I'll show you some fucking domain experience." Like, it, it basically became like a spite project because I was so felt so rejected by that job, but also was so then certain that this is what I wanted to do. I just thought I'm going to publish two blog posts a week for a year. And if nothing happens and no one likes it and no one cares, then I'll stop. But that's not what happened.
0: Was it like exploring your personal newfound interest in finance in easily digestible form was kind of the goal, like not to give financial advice, but explore your curiosity out loud?
1: Yeah, kind of. That's a good way to put it. It was like I was learning about these things that I thought were was very interesting and I wanted to share it with other people and I I do have kind of an irreverent approach to it just cuz that's that's just more fun for me, yeah. I think. And like, yeah, it wasn't it probably bordered on financial advice in some cases, but nothing that I think anyone would ever be like well, that's, on, that's out of left field. I mean, it's like buy index funds, save money. But with a more, I would say, uh, with more of a point of view. And that point of view has really evolved over the f- four years now that I've been doing it. Um, but yeah, it's crazy. That was, so that was 2020. 2021 was a good year. By 2022, it well, got acquired by Morning Brew. And Last year, how'd you find an audience? You built a huge audience. Well, that's the thing is that, like, in the beginning, I was just sharing my work on my personal Instagram, which had like 4,000 followers, I think, at the time, which had been built up a little bit by being a fitness instructor because, like, people followed the instructors oh, okay. in, in mm-hmm. Dallas, but still, I mean, that's a pretty small audience, even for a fitness instructor. Um, but I was sharing it on my personal page, and then I kind of started to realize like a lot of these people follow me for like fitness content or because they know me personally, like they don't want to read about a Roth IRA. So I was like, let me just go shuffle this somewhere else and make an Instagram account just for this. And so by the time it got acquired though, it only had like 25,000 followers. It was not big, but then the joining Morning Brew and tapping into their audience network and getting in front of their people was interesting because it, the audience took off, but also it exposed me to a lot of finance bros and trolls and internet hate that I had not gotten before. And so that first year that I was with them was psychologically tumultuous because I would open my DMs and it would be nine women being like, I love you. And then one guy being like, you're a dumb bitch and blah, 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 blah. And I was just Mm. like, not Used to that. Yeah. Like it was so foreign to me. And I think until you are on the receiving end of it so casually and so flippantly, you like, it's like, yeah. oh my God, people, like, speak why that am I way? signing
0: up for this energy? Yeah. You're introducing something in your life that it's like not real because they don't know you, but it's so real internally when you're on the receiving end of it.
1: Yes. It activates your fight or flight response where it's like, I'll have to, I can like feel the cortisol and the adrenaline and my heart starting to race. And I'm like, why am I letting an app on my phone make me feel this way? But it doesn't feel that way in the moment. In the moment you're like, oh, this person is like calling out very specific things about me that I probably have insecurities about anyway. And they're just lighting it up. So it was a it's funny because it like it's the part of the story that usually, no one's actually asked me that before. Usually it's like, wow, success story. Like That's where things took off and everything was happy. And it's like, actually the first year was pretty miserable because it was like, I felt very overexposed and very vulnerable to mm-hmm. audiences that did not like what I had to say. And I feel much better about that now. And I think it's been, it's made me stronger. And I've gotten to the point where I'm like, I'm okay with the fact that some people don't like me and that some people you know, have mean things to say. It doesn't bother me as much, but it's still, it's interesting doing anything in a, in a public space and putting your thoughts out there for consumption and putting your identity out there for consumption. Well, that's it. It's
0: an important part of the story to tell because there's nuance when it comes to market response to your idea or your business Mm -hmm. or your work and being met with a full, you've been doing something very new, being met with a full year of pushback trolling and naysayers, you might think that that, is, that represents the scope of demand for your work when really right. it's just not hitting the right audience. So it's pretty cool that you had such an instinctual you know, drive to like know that there was value in what you were doing to just mm-hmm. find the right audience instead of have the wrong people get you out of the game.
1: Oh, thanks. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I was listening to Something that really stuck with me about this, I was listening to a guy named Sean on a podcast called My First Million, which is very broy. But they were interviewing. So bro-y. I,
0: I would avoid that podcast like the plague.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's not. It's, it's like not the vibe of My the-
0: First Million.
1: <laughs> yeah, I'm like, listen, Beth, this is probably not something you would enjoy. Um, but I was listening to it because they interviewed Hassan Minaj and. Granted, this was pre him getting canceled for like telling fabricated stories right. in his stand up special and the whole, you know, where does comedy, where does that cross a line? Yeah. But at I'm the team time, this on, on this one, but you know what? Same. I'm so happy you said that. I, I like him. And he was talking about this same subject and, you know, people hating your work very openly and loudly. And Sean had kind of stopped him and was like yeah but listen like that's the price you're paying but look at the upside that you reap too and i it kind of struck me that you only get the upside if you are willing to put yourself in that arena in a way that other people maybe are not it's like the same thing as investing the risk is usually correlated mm. with the return i mean not when we're talking about something like bitcoin but in general risk and return are very are very um connected topics and I just thought about the fact that, like, I have never, that was the most money I had ever made. And I was like, yeah, that's the, that's why people don't feel bad when influencers are like, yeah. people are mean to me. It's like, cause they know how much money they're right. making. It's like you're being compensated to take it, but you, that doesn't make it any easier. It's just a function of, I think, um, psychologically protecting yourself and having to do that hard inner work of, believing that your work is worthy and that it's worth it and that like to your point about finding the audience that really that it does resonate with that you trust that those people are out there and and now I just feel so thankful for the community you probably feel the same way I get that sense that you feel this way about your community that like I love the people that listen to my show and write in and the people on Instagram. Like I don't really deal with the trolls as much anymore because I think we've kind of like called the herd a little bit of the people that aren't adding anything. Oh, totally. So you
0: started building an Instagram following with your content Mm -hmm. and then you said in 2021 Business Insider slash Morning Brew acquired Money with Katie as a podcast.
1: As a brand, so okay. it, let's see, I'll break down our business model because um, this is another thing that I like to be open about. I think people should know how, how what, what's, if you're considering doing something like this, you should know what's possible, right? Um, not that I'm the extent of what's possible because there are people much, much bigger than me, but ours is not that big. Like it's, do, it does well, but it's not like it's a top five show on Spotify. Um, yeah, yeah. So our business model is we have a podcast, The Money with Katie show, which is kind of like the hero content, if you will. It's kind of like the main place and it's the thing that I focus on the most. Um and it was very new. It was like fledgling when they acquired me. I think I had re- I had released like 7 or 8, maybe 10 episodes and it was literally the voice memo into the iPhone, press upload on rss.com. There was (laughs) no audio engineering happening. I was like, this is the voice file. Here you go. I'm going to rant about this for 20 minutes. Um, And the blog, which is, it's still on the same Squarespace website, but I would release new pieces every week. Um, The Instagram account, which had like 25,000 followers and the newsletter, which was also pretty nascent, so the way that we've evolved since then. Now I think we're over two hundred thousand on Instagram. We have like a hundred and seventy thousand newsletter subscribers. Um, oh, that's a big newsletter! Shit. Well, and that's the that's thanks to you know Morning Brew has four million, so you start wow, pumping it out to that's them, so but. Cool. And we're really lucky in that I think we found the right people in our newsletter audience. Like, again, 2022 was rough. We got a lot of really mean replies. But like, now that we've (laughs) got our core group, like open rates are high, engagement's high. We spend a lot of time making sure it's value packed. We have like a job board now. We just really try to make it an amazing experience for the reader. Um, And we sell a product called a wealth planner, which is basically a tricked out Google sheet that I've been making for years that helps you manage your personal finances. So it's at a $57 price point. It's kind of risen over time as this product has become more and more uh, complex. And like now I have an Excel freelancer that helps me make it because there are a lot of things in it that I don't know how to do. But um, it's it's interesting. So our, our revenue in 2023 with that scope of products and whatever, I think we had like half a million maybe in digital product sales and then another million in advertising. So you're at like you're not quite at 2 million but it's it's there's a lot of different pieces there that are feeding the the beast and you know there's two of us that are running it for Morning Brew. So it's it's really cool. A, I think um I don't I'm
0: obsessed with you sharing numbers. I love people oh, who share good. numbers. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I just think it's interesting. Like, I, I think that people should know. I mean, there's probably someone listening to this who would make an amazing podcast and newsletter who's like, wait a second, that's totally worth my time. Like, but you just don't know. Just don't quit your day to day job while you start it. <laughs> no, I and I didn't. I did money with Katie on the side while I worked full time for That's the key over a year until yeah. there was a lot of viability. So um I echo that too. I don't wanna be the like everyone should go be their own girl boss, but I do think that like it's, it's the real value, as trite as it sounds, is that it has really held up a mirror to me to be like, there's a lot of shit that you got to look at, girl, that you are not looking <laughs> at. But now that you're trying to put yourself out there and say what you think and, you know, totally. risk it and run a business like there are so many things that you have to face in yourself that can get in the way that I don't think I it would have taken me much longer in life and many more life experiences, I think, to I- encounter those parts of myself had I not done this. Yeah, self-employment
0: is a hard look in the mirror. You you work through a lot of, or so entrenched in your work, there's just truly no separation. And so when people say things aren't personal, you're like, well, no, it actually is, because I, <laughs> my person is my revenue generator. Is like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, is the product. Yeah. Um, okay, so can I be totally honest with you? Please. Re this category. I've never had somebody on in this field se- since... You know, financial takes tend to be male-driven, and they can be condescending. And I think there's, if I'm being honest, I I feel like there's a lot of bad actors and and uh, exploitative things that go on mm-hmm. in the realm of financial advice and financial content creation. And a name people would know that I've always been like, why the hell do people listen to this guy? Is like a Dave Ramsey, like the, the the kind of mentality of just like shaming. The shit out of people who have debt Like he didn't even know what childcare cost As recently as two weeks that ago That video
1: was unbelievable Well yeah okay it's interesting That the, the yeah <laughs> I call it The 12 days of miss, because there Is a lot of grift it's like Well there's, there's different things I don't think Dave Ramsey is a grifter necessarily I think where I categorize him Is that it's very difficult to Sustain a platform built on frugality And budgeting when you have a hundred Million dollars like Right. That is no longer you're not relatable to your core audience. You're so far above them now that like and there's, there there are a lot of problematic things like talking about purity culture like fundamentalism the like I'm sure you know about his business practices and how right. like I mean it's just it's gross like what his
0: money goes into, yeah.
1: And they basically try to police their employees' The personal lives of like, if you're living with someone you're not married to, that's a very big no-no. Just really, they have their certain set of values that they try to enforce on the people that right. work for them. There's an
0: audience for that though, right? Like, yeah. And I think that's like a huge distinction is people will position themselves as being the authority for everybody, but especially mm-hmm. with money, you, like, you can't follow a blueprint of somebody who doesn't share your foundation. So Dave Ramsey speaking from What he knows, which is fair, but it's not going to apply to everybody and Mm -hmm. it doesn't have nuance for people in more challenging situations that are going to take away a great deal of shame from a lot of his takes and I just think there's a lot of condescension um, and anxiety. Sometimes I'll see my favorite podcast in the world. I've never missed an episode. It's like interviewing somebody about saving for their future and personal finance. And I won't listen because I don't want to deal with the feelings of like, I'm behind. I'm not doing this right. I spend too much. Mm. You know, I think I have so much money noise. And I didn't even really realize I had dodged this topic until we were about to get on the phone. I was like, I should just tell her that I struggle with this because it brings up unresolved feelings in me. And, um, I do worry about how a lot of entrepreneurial and financial and like content that oversimplifies things like can actually lead people to like financial ruin. I want to drop kick everybody that told people to invest in NFTs, you know, (laughs) like there should be held accountable for just giving bad
1: advice. (laughs) Okay. This is so interesting. Do you mind if I can, I'm so curious to ask more, but I don't want to put you on the spot because I feel like money noise, like that is super personal. Um, but, like, are uh, what does the noise sound like? Or, like, when you say... Because I think there's something that you're highlighting that's really interesting, which is this idea of, like, I don't want to look at that because I don't think I'm going to like what I see. Or, like, I this is going to bring up feelings for me that I don't want to deal with. And right. I think that it's very easy in the money space to be, like, it's so simple. It's so obvious. Just look at the whatever, like, interest rates and blah, blah, blah. But... I do think that it's important to remember as someone in the money space, like for me, there are other areas of my life that I am that way about. I don't want to say it's not a personality thing because that's not really what I mean. I'm doing a poor job of explaining this, but like you can know the facts and still have psychological hangups that prevent you from taking action. And Yes. Just because like money isn't an area for you where that happens, it probably happens somewhere else, which is my case where like I have other things in life where I'm like I don't want to listen to an interview about that because I'm up here about things that I don't want to think about or deal with so I, I don't know if anybody
0: else this is this is funny I, we have this could not be a less um, planned conversation so we'll just see where we go um, but I don't know if anybody can relate to this, but I struggle with administrative tasks with organizational stuff that I don't know how to explain it. I, I'm a creative and I think I'm very smart and productive in some ways, but when it comes to stuff like the minutia of money management and stuff. A, I struggle to engage because it doesn't always interest me. And part yeah, of that is in probably how it's delivered, to your point, That's which is why fair. there's white spaces to be filled and how people contextualize it. And secondly, it's something I hate about myself is that I'm not I'm not a person that checks my statements often. It gives me anxiety. Mm-hmm. And then I feel guilty and ashamed that like I don't follow it more closely. I don't save more. Then I see somebody being like, if you stop going to Starbucks. You wouldn't be a renter anymore. You could afford to get some equity in a home, and I'm like, oh, geez. But I love Starbucks, and so I think sometimes I don't want that advice. Where I'm like, can we can we live? The world might end tomorrow, but I also know that I need to be an adult and be responsible. So yeah, I have. Be- I just put my stuff in interest bearing accounts. I'm a conservative risk taker have a four hundred one k, and hope for the best. So yeah, I have. Be- I have shame with my how. Unproductive I am when it comes to a lot of like life management stuff. Mm. Like I won't open mail. I, won't, like, I I don't know. We don't need to get into that, that part of sen- me.
1: No, but I think that makes <laughs> a lot of sense. I guarantee you, half the people listening to this are like same Kate. It's the most natural thing in the world, and I think that the the shame element of it though is it's so important to remember that that is learned like. Yeah. No one comes out of the womb feeling bad about that. Like you have been taught that that's something you should feel bad about. So sometimes shame is a compound emotion. I think where like, I feel shameful about something. And then I feel shameful about the shame. And then it just like, right. it's me too much. And then it compounds so like interest, <laughs> <laughs> but like, right. but like, um, the, it, what it's bringing up for me is the switch that flipped because that is definitely how I felt. Um, I remember getting my discover statements at the end of the month and seeing the balance and being like, I've been defrauded. Like something has gone horribly wrong. And then sitting there and going like, oh, no, fuck, I forgot about that. Yeah. North Park. Okay. Lululemon. Oh, I forgot about that dinner. Like, yeah. Piece by piece being like, it was all me. And I, I never felt the need to budget or track it or I mean even budgeting at the time I was just kind of like, this is so dumb. Like you're just making up your own rules and then enforcing them on yourself and like if the rules are bad, then the results can be bad even if you follow them and like what's the whole point anyway? But what really what really changed, I think to give the fire credit movement what or to give the fire movement credit rather, was that that was the final like that was the piece of the puzzle that when it clicked into place I went, Oh, that's the point. It's that like, mm. if you have enough money that it can support you and that the money is making money for you, then you don't have to work or like you don't have to even work a job that you don't love or you don't have to stay in a job that's high paying even though you don't like it. Like you you basically, it, it's like a freedom thing for me where like I felt trapped by the fact that despite the fact that i loved my job this is the weird part about it in retrospect like i loved my job i loved the people i worked with i liked working like i liked corporate america i liked the jargon i liked the emails i liked our little outfits like i had fun i have the cause playing an adult <laughs> like i didn't mind it but it was the kind of like endless indefinite like 40 years stretch where i was like this i don't want to do this forever and i feel like unless i have money to fall back on i'm not going to have any other option And so once I kind of put the pieces together about like how spending relates to um, how much you're able to save and how investing can buy your freedom, like then it started to have a a why in a way that it hadn't before. Mm -hmm. Um, But I do think that like that's what you're describing is so normal and the shame around kind of like not being the best administrative assistant to yourself or like not having big executive assistant energy for yourself is like, right. It's just not your gift. And if you had that gift, you probably wouldn't have a successful podcast talking about your observations about culture. Like <laughs> there are some things about being that kind of like type A and rigid and regimented that don't translate to being these other things. What I also think like we don't,
0: and at least not in the public school system, like I think even in my book, I'm like, yeah, I could can tell you all about Sokotoa, but not personal finance. Like, I never learned about taxes, mortgages, like anything. And, um, like, I think what's interesting about personal finance is that I consider myself decently competent. Um, however, without any formal education, training, or like background in investing, it is mm. so confusing. And that you have to devote a lot of time to just learning and understanding the landscape, much less feel equipped to take risk in it, a calculated yeah. risk. You have to be able to calculate <laughs> what, what you're even dealing with to be able to do that. And, like, it, it's if it's a category that you associate with like anxiety or shame, it, that's part of it. But then it's it, also like the energy drain of having mm-hmm. to learn so much yeah. about something that you might not be that naturally interested in. I think most people are interested in making money, um, but get discouraged, or at least I feel de-energized sometimes when I get yeah. deeper into investment talk because I'm just so out of my league that especially at my age, I don't like feeling incompetent. I like to yeah. stick to like, so anyway- Me too. My husband I mean- and I have endless <laughs> convos about this because he's in finance. So we have trouble communicating because, and this is why I think your role is interesting because you can explain financial stuff To people that don't have a financial background, he's so in it and he does his best. Do I not, you know, I regularly uh, do not show at our family budget meetings. I simply cannot be bothered.
1: What this is reminding me of and this idea of like they don't teach it to you in school. I mean, not to be a conspiracy theorist, because I don't I don't think it's that orchestrated, but I do look at this and go, if they're not teaching people in school, and this, this knowledge is benefiting a very specific part of the population. Oh, There's wow, probably a reason that they don't <laughs> want... that. God, you're right. It's complex on purpose because the status quo is maintained by it being something that makes you feel like an other. The entire financial services industry makes money on you believing that you cannot do this yourself. That is the whole that's the whole industry of financial services for consu- like consumer facing. Like, so that's why I love that you brought this up of like, because I don't have a background in it. Cause I don't, I don't have formal training, but I do think that that's why I can talk about it in a way that regular people like me understand. Cause I'm a regular person that was like, hold on, wait. So hold on. How does this work? Oh, okay. So it's kind of like this, like, and that's, that's why yeah. a lot of young women are successful in this space because Women are half the population. Hello. Like the fact that no one was trying to talk to them before is like, what are you guys doing? But I do think that um, on the note of it being really complex, that was actually one of the reasons why I wanted to talk about it. Because once I, it was, it's a little bit like smoke and mirrors where once I actually kind of got under the hood and I was like, so I just sign up for this, this robo advisor and like dump money in and it'll invest it for me. Oh, okay. Well, that's super easy. Or, like, oh, you just buy this one total stock market index fund and that's all you have to do. And then, as long as you're just saving money and putting more money in the bucket, like it just grows. Like, why didn't anyone tell me before? I thought I was going to have to be analyzing shareholder prospectuses and like reading scheduled. Can't, I don't even know what they're called because I've never yeah, read. Do I have one. to watch
0: Jim Cramer and like pay attention <laughs> to stock tickers?
1: Kill me. Oh my god, no! And who wants to? <laughs> like, I I don't do that. I don't read those things. I don't analyze independent companies. I just, I mean, like, there are so many different solutions. Now that's really the beauty of like existing in the 21st century. And also on the note about being a renter, also a renter, I'm like, I don't want my net worth tied up in a, in my primary residence. I want it in something that's like diversified. But it doesn't mean that I I'm an expert in investing. I mean. The best thing you can do for yourself is just kind of like buy that one index fund and then try to make more money to throw at the index fund, which any any financial professional hearing me say that will be like, you need to put so many disclaimers on that comment. And it's true. I do. But I think, you know, I don't I, I think the the point is that it's a lot simpler than we are all made to believe it is. And like interrogating why we are made to believe it's complex is an important part of this. Hmm.
0: It's it's also an interesting field where like I feel two ways. I okay. I am so worried about the vulnerability of people when it comes to money and the mo- and motivations of people sharing money advice. And mm. um, I just want people to be so so careful where they take advice. And I I agree. Can it, with like healthcare stuff, I'm very obsessed with credentials. I I don't really follow a lot of financial influencers because I don't know. I don't know if I've really thought through this before, but like, how do you tow that line? Right. Because there's so much shit that with like, you know, regulatory requirements, one, but two, just like ethical responsibility. How do you tow the line between being upfront about like, I not a CFP or whatever, but there's still value in what I have to say and Mm -hmm. not worry too much about having to caveat everything ever.
1: Yeah. Well, I think for one thing, that's why I like long form so much because it enables me to talk about these things in a way where I can properly disclaim. This is not please don't take this as financial advice. I'm not trying to tell you what to do. I want you to know about this thing that exists. That I want exists, you to see the yeah. history of why it's powerful. This is why people would invest in something like this. And also, history is not not a, a guarantee of future returns. Just because it's been this way for the past 100 years doesn't mean it'll continue to be this way. Here's the, here's the historical risk that you could think about. But there are also best practices that, I mean, really the, the, the licenses and certifications are very important if you're taking one-on-one advice from someone. But even then, it's a minefield because there are a lot of people that call themselves financial advisors that are insurance salesmen. And they're not going to give you a certain they're not going to give you a comprehensive financial plan. They're not going to help you figure out a strategy for your early retirement. They're not going to help you pay off debt. They're going to sell you a life insurance policy. And that's really that's how they make money. They have high commission products. And I don't want to sit here and trash insurance salespeople because insurance has a time and place. But even the the words that we use to describe these professionals, you don't actually need a credential to call yourself a financial advisor
0: is interesting to think of a lot of those people being experts on the products the company sells not experts on personal finance.
1: Nailed it. Yep. You should really look for someone that has this CFP designation if you want to work with a pro because that's like the rigorous it's a very hard test to pass and right. they know they know their stuff, right? But as far as general education, I think how I view my role is like I want to get people comfortable thinking about this stuff. I want to show them that it's not rocket science. And if you graduated from high school, you've done harder stuff than what we're talking about, Mm -hmm. even if it doesn't look that way on the surface. Um, And to get, I think, excited about the role that money can play in their lives as an enabling force. Like, I loved the interview you did with Nikki Glaser, (laughs) where she was like, I'm spending $25,000 on Air Tour tickets and I was like that is amazing. Like I yeah, love I love, that. I love when people really do unconventional things with their their money and 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 do what, you know, my friend Ramit calls living your rich life, which is like it's up to you. And money can be a tool that can help you get there. He's a very successful personal finance guy. Um, he has a show on Netflix called How to Get Rich. And his branding is a little hokey, but like his advice is very, very sound. He calls it your rich life, which is like your rich life can look a lot of different ways. Money is one tool that you're using in that rich life. Mm. Um, and you actually can have a very simple and basic relationship with it and still be very, very successful with it. But I, I share your kind of like disgust in a lot of ways about the space and some of the more popular, I don't know, it's like, it does feel very grifty. And I think that you're you're absolutely right about being rightfully skeptical about the motivations at play and how is someone being compensated? How are they making money? What are they really trying to sell you? Like, these are all questions that, that we should have and ask, so I encourage that cynicism. What excites me is that I think the more that I talk to people that didn't used to like personal finance and like now find it fun and have seen kind of the effects in their own life of like getting more familiar with it and and starting to invest and in like watching their money grow, it's just really cool because it's like, yeah, it's not that hard, and like we 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 can build this community that does take a more holistic approach that is also acknowledging of the systemic things that are happening. Because that's my other big beef with the space is that it acts as though money exists in this vacuum or like personal finance exists in this vacuum that's exempt from the rest of the world. And it's like, Mm -hmm. literally you, it is not possible to separate your personal financial situation from policy. Every single thing about your- political. It is inherently political. I mean, like we can sit here and give a thousand examples. So it's just, I think- a lot of it, though, by not taking a position or by not mm-hmm. addressing it, you're taking a position. You're saying, I don't care. Yeah. Um, and I think it well, is that kind of like bootstrappy individualist, it's all your fault, like rugged mentality that r- turns people off because it should because it's it's gross and it's out of touch.
0: I love how at the beginning you cl- clarify the difference between wanting more like discretionary income versus like resource scarcity, because I do think that's an important mm. thing to distinguish and also my own privilege in being like, I make a good living and I'm fine. I think there's something there where you um, don't even realize that like, especially with self-employment, you have to chase your next check. And it is so exhausting that to your point about freedom, like, yeah, that's a different way to look at it in terms of like having to dive into this and it being time-consuming to understand, it isn't a waste of my time. It's kind of in and of itself a time investment to like not have to be working from job to job and uh, to have a little bit of wiggle room. Because we were talking about earlier how like you realize after a while, success is kind of yes, money, but also being selective. And money is a part of that, but you know, it's just not operating from a place of scarcity where you have to take the job, you have to do the thing you don't want to be doing or that's below your pay grade or whatever. And I think what's funny is self-employment is truly in podcasting and internet careers, there could not be a riskier thing to double down in because we don't have any data that shows what these careers look like 50 years down the line, and we don't have benefits or retirement. Or So you have to be a self-starter if you don't have mm-hmm. a company providing you that stuff. And so like, yeah, anyways, I have the basics. I don't want people to think I'm like in mountains of debt. It's just that it doesn't energize me. And um, I would sooner go to a hockey game then have a budgeting conversation <laughs> with my husband. I think I struggle with money mentalities that are, are all about like, no matter what, the goal is just to spend less. There has to be a balance, right? It can't be like every cup of coffee you get, you're thinking about how you could be saving it or you could get a return on it. Right. Because also, why do we work this hard if we don't like enjoy and spend money? And
1: Yes. You know?
0: So I, I – yeah, anyways. And that I'm becomes – I'm revealing a lot about my own personal anxiety. I'm so Katie. happy. And well, I'm sorry hope, you're having to therapize me. No.
1: <laughs> I hope you don't have a – I feel like whenever I talk about these things, I get like a vulnerability hangover where I'm like, oh, have I said too much? So I hope, I hope <laughs> – I just want to keep reiterating that like everything you're saying is A – eminently relatable. I cannot tell you how many people I've had a very similar be like, I don't know. It just feels like deprivation. Like, and it's true. Like, I think that there's also, it's important to remember that a lot of the times we layer these like moralized frameworks on these things where it's like spending, bad, saving, good. Like there is a very Yeah, it's just it's it becomes like a moral thing instead of a math thing. And I think it's fun to see in some of Ramit's work. He will interview people who are, they have a five million, eight million, ten million dollar net worth. Okay. And they're like, I can't stop comparison shopping for strawberries. But it's like that doesn't get pathologized in the same way that liking spending money does. And but I think his point and what I would kind of like reiterate is that it is just as harmful to you to be a hoarder of money and to operate from a position of like. I have to, like, just rampant accumulationism of, like, I have to hoard as much as possible to protect myself from this big, bad world. Like, that's just as psychologically damaging as being like, I'm going to blow it all because YOLO, who knows where we're headed? Um, And it's, it's important to remember that, like, this is such a freeing concept to me that how you feel about money is highly uncorrelated to the number that you have in the bank account you'd think mm-hmm. that more money will make you feel more secure. And to a point it does, but you hit diminishing returns very quickly as far as the psychological returns that you're going to get. And I've experienced this in my own life where like at first having $100,000 invested, it was like, oh my God, I could do anything I want. And now I have so far beyond that because I've been very fortunate in my career and have invested a lot And like, I don't feel any safer, more secure. Like, it's mm-hmm. such a fascinating thing, the, the things that we ask money to give us emotionally. And I think that that the coffee example is so funny because it, even in the personal finance space, it's like gotten a little played out. But if if buying a coffee every day is the biggest financial problem you have, like, no, it's not. The, the $5 coffee every day should not make a dent. We have to stop worrying about about the little things, but again, it's like, what are the little things that we're typically getting scolded for? They're typically things that code is feminine. So, mm. take that for what just you women will. be shopping. Women be shopping, <laughs> baby. It's true. <laughs> women be shopping. Um, but yeah, I just I, man. I just said
0: 12 things that blew my mind. I'm literally taking notes with a pen. Oh my God.
1: Thank you. Wow. No, I, I have to give credit where credit is due. Like I just did that a lot of what I just said, I learned from Ramit's philosophy and he really clarified a lot of that for me because as an early adherent of the FIRE movement, I had a very strong moral framework that frugality was good and spending was bad. And you see it in the culture all the time. We love rich people who drive old cars. We love rich people who act like they're poor. We're like, ooh, look at Warren Buffett. He's a billionaire. He still lives in his same house in Omaha that he bought when, in the 1950s. It's like, Warren Buffett has private jets, okay? like this, We do obsess over very rich people who kind of cosplay middle class mm-hmm. because I think we find it endearing and sweet. But it's like, I think there's something else worth interrogating there, which is – why do we encourage people, why would it be aspirational to live a smaller life than you are capable of living? Like, if you're earning mm, more money, yeah. you don't want to start, you don't want the goalposts to move. You don't want to sleepwalk. You don't want to just spend more willy-nilly because, ah, well, there's more money there, so I'm going to blow it. I mean, you don't want to do that. But the uh, the opposite of that is not, oh, I need to save every penny and I shouldn't upgrade my lifestyle at all. It's like, No. If you're working hard, you should be upgrading your lifestyle a little bit. Like, it just comes down to the intentionality around those choices of like, I'm choosing to buy a nice car because it's really important to me. I bought my dream car last year. I'm so happy with it. I don't care that it was overpriced. Like, it's fine. I know people in my field look down on me for buying a luxury car because it's like not considered a right value in the personal Mm -hmm. finance world, but it was important to me and I feel good every time I get in it. So, like, that's all that matters. It's not their money. Yeah. That's, it's, I could talk about it for hours. (laughs) The point
0: you made about how we don't pathologize people price comparing strawberries the same way we pathologize big spenders is hilarious and so true. Um, And I don't buy a lot of like fancy things because value to me is saving time and as inconvenience. Where all my money goes is like delivery fees, airplane seats with leg room, nice hotel rooms, room service. It's my... Like if you're a person who's markup phobic, which most people are, you would look at my behavior being like, oh my God, the amount of money wasted. And I'm like, no, but you don't understand. Yeah. So it's kind of an interesting thing where I think everybody spends their money differently. People are very quick to judge where you put it, but every value looks different to everybody. Like a Birkin would never do for me what, you know, like if I could, Take everybody I love for ten days to an all expenses paid like house with a chef in Turks and Caicos for the same price as a Birkin or a Kelly. I'd pick the trip. Just there's no right or wrong to your point. It's it's weirdly moralized, and I do think the uh, categories, especially women, like to spend money on. Can be Target very, runs.
1: Oh my god, yes. my wife won't stop going to Target. I'm like, if I hear that one more time, I'm going to throw up. Okay, that's the other thing that I am okay. Part of my
0: you know lack of participation in my family budget meetings. <laughs> my husband's literally just like he's not even trying to tell. He doesn't tell me to do anything. He's just like, hey, where are you spending? What stuff costs? We just have kid. That's so
1: okay. Our <laughs> ours is the opposite. Where I'm like, if you'll direct your attention to the television, I'm air playing a PowerPoint presentation that I've made where we're going to go through a series of charts. And my husband literally looked at me the other day. He goes. Do I actually have to pay attention? Like, is this important? And I was like, yes, I made a PowerPoint. Like, please watch it. So I, we're in I opposite roles here. But again, it's, I think it's a personality it, thing. Yes, it,
0: to- it totally is. I feel like I've seen so many circumstances where money is weaponized in, in marriages, when marriages end, is a source of tension that I think can be unfair. And I even before I got married, I told my you know, then boyfriend, I was like, I will never ever be a person who like, I'll compromise, but I don't want to be told where to spend. I don't want to be like shamed for getting a manicure. That's something that I know a lot of my friends' husbands get on their case about is how expensive nail maintenance and like hair highlighting is. I don't want the ways I spend my time and money being minimized. It is so pervasive in. TV movies pop culture social media memes everything to bitch about how much money your wife spends and I will not be that person and if I'm contributing whether I was staying at home or working like you're contributing to your household and your family's financial success and I hate that it's always like pegged on the wife for some reason that like she shouldn't be spending the money so I just think I'm a little bit resistant I just um I think it's like easy to kind of fall back into that and when you have different interests, and we talked about this on your podcast, and it's like, okay, well, you know, you don't have to understand why, like, getting my nails done means something to me for mm-hmm. it to be, like, a valid way I spend my money. Well, like, you, and
1: you you <laughs> joke you about all these forms of entertainment are the same, and you're referring to the media, right? You're referring to, like, watching the NFL game and making a pretend football team is the same thing as doing a bachelorette draft. Like, these yeah. are not dissimilar why are adjustable dumbbells and protein powder more legitimate than (laughs) nail maintenance? Like they're not, they're the same. And to your point, I do think that that world that you're referencing, that's kind of like, ha ha in pop culture of like, oh, women be shopping. My wife won't stop going to Target. Oh, when she brings the whatever, it's like, or like, oh, I'm hiding shopping bags from my spouse. I'm like, Listen to me very clearly. Ugh, if you have yeah. to hide purchases from your spouse because they're going to shame you, like mm. that that can turn so bad so quickly. We're literally working on an episode right now about money and divorce and women and these patterns and controlling behavior. If you're being berated for decisions that you're making, particularly if you're a stay-at-home mom and you are raising mm. children Rage. and Rage. you're being- you are being <sighs> nagged by your husband because you're spending, quote, their money? That is financial abuse. Like, oh. don't get me started on the, the devaluing of domestic labor and the pernicious way that we basically look at that as women's work and then go, so you didn't earn it. It's like, I, I can't remember. I was looking at this statistic the other day. It's like, if we assigned an economic value to the unpaid domestic labor that women do, it would represent 30% of GDP. Like, mm-hmm. that is my biggest pet peeve is when women's labor is devalued, and it's like across the board, regardless of employment status, women bear, or, uh, bear more of the load at home. The care work, the just running of a household, like it is hard work. It's not glamorous and it's thankless in many cases. So just the kind of systemic cultural devaluing of that contribution and, and how it relates to the woman's role, in a marriage where she is getting, it's like being shamed for purchases that she's making or having to have an allowance or having to be allowed to spend. Like, it just, I can't wait till we can evolve past that as a society. But I really, I mean, until we start to recognize the value and like, universal pre-k that would be a good step. Child care, having the public school day end when the work day ends, that's another good step, but it's like all this work statistically is falling on women by and large and that if we think that that's not going to impact their earning potential or like their consumption patterns or you know their behavior, like we're kidding ourselves. How can mm. it not?
0: Right. It's so interesting to hear you talk about this nuance because it is kind of ideologically at odds how we can be so aware and acknowledge how broken the system is in many ways, while also, to survive, you yourself have to work that system.
1: It's fun, isn't it?
0: Yeah. And I, and I don't know how to explain this. Like, I think that social media in recent years has become such an environment where even to suggest you want to earn money anymore is out of touch, progressing financially. You can't kind of can't show. That people. you're like a capitalist
1: simp. That's yes. like, oh, you're part of it.
0: <laughs> yes. So much of it is fundamentally unethical. But to be able to operate in this capitalist society, you have to participate right. in it. Right. So it's like I have hot takes about how influencers do things and make money and blah, blah, blah. But then like to be able to provide those takes, I have to monetize my commentary right. yeah. by doing a lot of the same stuff. And I just... Yeah, I have a lot of swirling thoughts about how to be a person that like wants to make money, but also like do right by the world. And then I feel like a bad person. And I, I, again, don't need you to therapize me through this, but just, you know, some thoughts (laughs) to throw out there.
1: (laughs) So this is one of the most interesting and present dilemmas in my life as a person that talks about money on the Internet, because... A, everything you just said is spot on. And I think that the the it's well represented actually in a video that I posted yesterday, which I was talking about the state of low wage work in the United States because the statistics are horrifying. Just as kind of like a refresher, it's like 22 or 23% of Americans are low wage workers, meaning they make an average of $11 an hour. Mm-hmm. That's almost one in four. And that is so out of the norm when you look at other high-income capitalist democracies. I believe Italy's rate of low-wage work is like 3%. You see like Spain and um, Japan are around 10. I think the OECD average is like 13. So we are really an outlier as far as like low-wage work goes. And our incidence of poverty is a lot higher than these other wealthy countries. And... That signals to me if I'm looking at this and I'm going, so there are other countries that have the same economic system that we do. They have the same political system that we do. They have similar, you know, G- GDP per capita rates, like productivity, right? This does not have to be this way. And when I started learning more about this, my eyes were kind of opened because I was very, I'll say, sheltered and had that very, uh, kind of quintessentially average midwestern upbringing like in a middle class suburb in like rural Kentucky um yeah went to a public college like i just i didn't know that this was that this was the state of our reality really until i got curious about well why are there so many homeless people in the united states well how come you know there are billion like how did people get that way and What are the tax loopholes that allow people to not pay tax? How does this work? Like, when I went down that rabbit hole, I learned a lot of things. But first and foremost, I learned that all these things are connected. So, like, the fact that our healthcare system is broken and people will go bankrupt paying for cancer treatments, the fact that there is no childcare, the fact that homelessness is on the rise, like, all of these different issues are very interconnected and... It's funny to look at countries that have figured this out. And usually what people will say is, well, those countries are a lot smaller than ours. I like to point to Scandinavia. Those people, the Nordic people, have figured this shit out. Norway, Finland, Sweden, Denmark. Like, I dragged my husband there on our honeymoon. I was like, we're going to all of the Scandinavian countries. We're going to observe life where they live. Like, fascinating. But they have figured it out. Their rates of poverty, homelessness, mental health, addiction, like, all of it's... All of it's low. They figured out like more effective wealth redistribution, but they are still capitalists. they are still market economies. There mm. are still rich people, but poverty is not a necessary component. Low wage work is not necessary. So like, a lot of this stuff is just deconstructing layers of what you've probably been told your entire life about why the system has to be the way it is. But fortunately, we can look to the rest of the countries in the world and go, well, it's not this that way there. So how are they doing this? They have playbooks. Why can't we? But unfortunately, like because of how I don't want to say how disillusioned Americans are, but like, yes, as you're to your point about social media, like people are mad. Populism mm-hmm. is on the rise. Like people understand that things are shitty. And that's where that, I think where that ire comes from and why there is such a tide shift of no rampant consumption is gross. Having nice things is great. It's because like everyone's in their eat the rich era. But I think it's important to remember that like the scale of the rich and the people that you should be mad at are not on Instagram posting about it. Like the people that are to blame for the system that we have now is not the, not the middle-class person that's sitting in in first class on the plane. Like, we are all in the same boat. And what was really illustrative of this to me was when the student loan thing happened, the student loan forgiveness, and everyone was up in arms about it. And it was all about how unfair it is. And they had us at each other's necks, over $10,000 a person, while the people in charge are upstairs having a 10-course meal that is the the good side the benefit of the class consciousness that everyone's gaining is like wait a second this is fucked up but i do think that d- directing that in an, in a productive uh direction is very important which is like we need to become more politically activated in our community literally the other day saw a sign on the mailbox for like a zoning meeting where they're trying to block low income affordable housing being built i'm like those are the rooms where this stuff is getting decided you can have a lot of influence at the local level and local politics influence you know, what happens at state and federal levels. Right. So I, I think it's important to just direct that ire and that passion and that fury appropriately. And sadly, like getting mad at an influencer on social media isn't really gonna fix anything. It might feel good in the moment, like I understand it, but uh, I don't know. And as far as the capitalism, the stock market of it all, I think what I struggle with is knowing that when you look at, corporate profits and like what has driven the stock market over the last 20 years. And the reason it's such a relentless wealth building machine is because the labor force is not being paid fairly. And so there is a little bit of cognitive dissonance. There's a lot of cognitive dissonance around feeling like you are indirectly profiting from that as a shareholder that is buying index funds. But I do think we're in that sticky middle phase right now. We're like, just opting out but not doing anything else is just going to make your life worse. It's not going to make anything better for anybody else. But I think mm. that collective action is where we can start to make change. And there are so many positive examples that that we could point to of like areas where it is really changing things and, and everything from affordable housing and tenant rights organizations to Companies like Defector media that are are completely employee owned and they equitably distribute their profits among their employees. their, their employees are shareholders in the business, which is I think the, the model that like that is how you create wealth in America mm. is you you give people ownership and equity in what they're building and what they spend time on every day. And like if you're mm. just a laborer for a wage, and that wage is constantly being depressed, you're kind of always fighting an uphill battle. So you like have to become a shareholder to get any sort of primacy in the system. And right now, that means, yeah, that like someone at somewhere, somewhere in the supply chain is probably being exploited. And it doesn't mean that you can't indulge. Um, but I do. I think that even though it feels dissonant sometimes, I do think that these things are, are connected. There's a few points I wanted
0: to touch on. Is it okay if I, as long as I let you go by... F- 30-year time?
1: Yeah, I have nothing to do tonight. Um, I do think that where I am now with this, after kind of going through this and spending all day every day thinking about it, is that I don't think that business has to be inherently exploitative. And I think it's possible to run an ethical business where people are well compensated, where they are respected, where your consumers and customers are not being taken advantage of, where they feel like a fair value exchange is happening. And I think there are really interesting ways to achieve it, too, like profit sharing models, like employee ownership, co-ops, like um, I mean, there's there are a lot of things that you can do. And so I look now at businesses that I perceive as ethical, where I look at their whole thing and I'm like, I don't see a single person being exploited. I see a lot of value creation. I see a lot of people being enriched and like lives being enriched. But like now there's a person on my team who we pay six figures and like she never thought she was going to have a six figure salary. And like now because of something that we're making together, she has one. So I think that there's also being an MLM without (laughs) being an MLM. Yeah. Oh my God.
0: Six (laughs) figures in no time. Yeah.
1: (laughs) So it's like, and even that's like an arbitrary, you know, benchmark, but, but it's just, I think that I, I see so much. I see, I see the opportunity here for us to overcorrect. And to be like, okay, women, you had your chance in positions of power. No more of that. Like, you blew it. Whereas I think it's 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 more nuanced of like, we still need diversity of opinion and personhood anywhere that decisions are being made, whether that's boardrooms, courtrooms, mm-hmm. like, we need and we need to overturn citizens united (laughs) that's the other thing we need to take personhood away from corporations that i think would solve 80 percent of the problems that we have in like one fell swoop is that if corporations did not have more of a politically powerful position than individual people do but yeah i mean it's it's a journey for sure. Like I've I have been on the ups and downs of deconstructing that and being like, okay, so what here was helpful and what is useful and like what it what is inspiring and like what does tell people like cuz the good thing about it I think is that it showed women like ambitions not a bad thing. Like mm-hmm. ambitions not a dirty word. You can be ambitious and you can use that ambition to create amazing things and and help people and make a lot of money and make a lot of money for other people and have delighted customers like It doesn't. Exploitation is not a prerequisite. It's just that like the version of capitalism that we have in the U.S. in the 21st century is so exploitation-heavy that it feels hard to separate. But I don't know. I I really have have loved learning more about businesses that are run ethically because it it's like so heartening to see as someone that is ambitious and does love entrepreneurship and also cares about people. Yeah.
0: I love that you are ending on a more hopeful note because I think part of the mind F for me is just like feeling like you have to choose between yeah. caring about other people or your own success. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it shouldn't have to be that way.
1: I feel like I, um, I just talked for a lot. I'm sorry.
0: No, no, don't don't apologize. I feel like there's just so much here. I'm just even excited to like listen back to this episode to absorb it all. So- I feel a lot of guilt about my boss, babe, era. Um <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> you're slowly
1: working through my money. You're, you're, your rug is, empire? Why? Wait, why do you feel <laughs> guilt about it?
0: We'll get right back to the episode where I tell Katie my beef with my girl boss, era. But before we get into the meat of the discussion, I'm insufferable. I want to thank ButcherBox for sponsoring this episode. Butcher Box for me, it's so many things. It's like, okay, these really high quality cuts of meat. Are really expensive at grocery stores and you're not always exactly clear on where it's from and what you're getting in my experience to justify the markup butcher box is such an easy way to find high quality meat and seafood you can trust with 100% grass-fed beef free range organic chicken pork raised crepe free and wild-caught seafood that's humanely raised no antibiotics or added hormones and honestly the ultimate convenience delivered to your doorstep with free shipping Sometimes I'll get a custom box where I'm like, I really want more bacon and some nugs, maybe like, I don't know, a rogue rack of ribs to spice up my winter. Or sometimes I'll take their curated boxes, so maybe I'll try something new. But it's really nice, especially in the winter in Chicago, especially when, you know, I left my husband for weeks on end going on tour. I'm like, there's some meat in the freezer. (laughs) In any situation where you want you or someone else to be fed, have it be easy, have it be delicious and be high quality food you can trust. Look no further than ButcherBox. As a gal that tends to go to the grocery store and mostly buy things for grazing, like, I I think my um, favorite food is sides or dips, you know? I get intimidated at the meat counter, and I just appreciate the convenience of having everything I need for that month in my freezer. I think this is a great gift for, like, anybody, really, but especially, I don't know, people that are hard to buy for, dudes who love to grill, or, you know, people that will get them for, you know, aging parents and people that can't be carrying heavy bags and do a lot of trips to the grocery store, and there's just countless reasons that I think this makes a ton of sense. And we're so grateful to ButcherBox for being a long-term beat there in five. Partner, and thanks to all of you bests who have supported them as well by using my code. With ButcherBox, you don't have to worry about what's for dinner. ButcherBox is offering our listeners their choice of a weeknight meal essential, three pounds of chicken thighs, two pounds of ground beef, or one pound of premium steak tips for free in every order for a whole year. Plus get $20 off your first order. Sign up today at butcherbox.com slash be there in five and use code be there in five to choose your free offer and get $20 off. So I feel a lot of guilt about my boss, babe, Ara. Um <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. You're <laughs> slowly so, working through my money. You're your rug like, empire. Why? Wait, why do you feel <laughs> guilt about it? I think that I didn't start to kind of deconstruct and digest all the reasons I wasn't more of an empowered person and feminist till like I was deeper in my twenties and got out into the workforce. And I think I've always been me, but I was very, very held back by a lot of the stuff I write about in the book of the Mm -hmm. kind of external forces that like break down your confidence and your value and your self-worth and (laughs) blah, blah, blah. But I was a person that like wanted to be empowered and I wanted to be on the right side of history and championing women and all these things. And I think once I finally got the confidence to like you said, and had the security to like, Explore, speak out, push mm-hmm. back. The first place I found it was in my entrepreneurial venture, was in like financial independence. But so much of my money noise comes from the several years where I felt so, I was so mad at myself for leaving my corporate job and mm. um, was having trouble generating income. And I, in my book, I tell you how much I uh, had to save to be able to like quit my mm-hmm. job and like live for a little while. And um, That's why I tell people to keep their day jobs because if, like, I couldn't even make it work. (laughs) And I'm so well set up that I just, I was really uh, susceptible to follow your dreams at all costs messaging Mm -hmm. um, from people that had the luxury of their dreams not working out and still being okay. When I first started the doormats, they took off and they were viral. And i the business did well financially, but it was expensive as hell to run and impossible yeah. to scale given the oh minimums gosh. and physical necessity. inventory too. Yes. Dude, it was that's tough. Yeah. It got to a point where I was like, oh, you can grow and grow and grow. But your if your expenses are stagnant and increase, like my margins never getting better. I'm not getting rich off this. It will bury me. Yeah. Um, and it all, anyway, so but when I first started out and I was getting a lot of attention for being like a girl boss and I was really proud of myself for building something from scratch that I had no experience mm-hmm. in, I, I just got so much self-replenishing confidence from that experience that I hadn't gotten previously in life because I was just trying to be like fun and hot and drunk. You know what I mean?
1: Same, <laughs> Kate. Oh my God. that's No, that's my villain origin story too. My identity. But like, I'm sorry, I don't mean to interrupt you, but I just no. I can't tell you how much I relate to that because especially as a sorority girl in Alabama, I mean like- It was very obvious where your value was in that community.
0: Yeah, I think like the doormats kind of, even though I talk about how difficult it was from a business model standpoint, they saved me in that I just didn't even know the range of my own potential and skills and adaptability. And I just never been able to exercise those sides of myself in any other era of my life. And I really found myself through that entrepreneurial experience being like, oh, I'm Competent and creative and resilient, and like all these qualities, didn't matter at a frat party. Didn't all that mattered in college and high school were grades. I'm a B student through and through. Like I'm a pretty average person, book smarts wise, but I just had other talents that I never got to use until I was older. So then I, I got so much confidence out of that because it didn't mm-hmm. come from external validation. It came from something I did and built and made mm-hmm. and risks I took.
1: You have to, like, it's so funny because when you first started, like, I feel a lot of shame about that period. And then you are like, I built resilience. I built confidence. I saw myself as more than just like a hot, fun, drunk chick. And I'm like, where's the shame? Where's the shame? Like, all I'm hearing is amazing things. Shame is
0: not the right word. I think I went so hard for feminism and empowerment in the context of individualistic, capitalistic gain. Yes. That which is which is what the whole girl boss period was about. Mm-hmm. It's a form of empowerment, absolutely, and it's they're impo- they're important conversations to have in terms of how we as individuals should feel empowered and should have financial independence and be in leadership roles and whatever. It's just not going to solve you know the many intersectional issues that women are facing, and it's a huge problem when women are motivated to hyper-focus on feminism in the context of individualism Hmm. because it keeps things, it's the scaffolding that upholds the patriarchy when the most privileged individuals of an oppressed group keep to themselves, Uh um, empower themselves and aren't actually using that privilege for everybody else. Um, And I think, and I was very involved with microfinancing at the time. Mm -hmm. And I think I was very pull yourself up by the bootstraps. And, you know, I, I, got it. I don't know. Just even learning that like in many countries, a woman can't get a credit card without her husband. Women have zero access to capital. Like they are stuck, stuck. So I was like, hell yeah, I'm going to put money into this. And you know, these women and like, you know, across the world and be like, invest in some capital, start a small business, work for your community, blah, blah. And now I'm just like, Jesus Christ, it's nuts for like a Western woman like me to be like, here's some money. Go check, you know, like support your family. Bye. And uh, despite like, all the many things you're dealing with that I have no access to <laughs> nor understanding <yeah>. of.
1: <laughs> I mean, that's fair. That's fair. Like, I, but I think that that just shows your growth. Like, uh, I think to be able to criticize your past self and be like, this is how I've changed. I don't think that's anything to be ashamed of, though I share your embarrassment because my most cringy personal finance takes are entombed for perpetuity on my website. And Ooh, I tell won't delete of them. them. <laughs> oh my God. Well, oh, I was just reminded of one today. I wrote this really kind of like, it was like a characteristically sassy smackdown of like buying a nice car. And I did all the math about like, I literally used a Porsche Cayenne in the example of like how you should invest for 15 years before you buy a Cayenne. And then last year I bought a Macan and I was like coming, (laughs) crawling back with my tail between my legs being like, okay, so let's address the elephant in the room. I know that I've had some strong takes on this, but you know, like poke fun at and be like, here's where I was right. And here's where I was wrong. Here's what Mm -hmm. I couldn't see back then that I can see now. And also here's where like, there was a thread of truth in what I was saying, but like the example of microfinance and kind of being like wanting to help someone in a situation that you perceive as being helpable, like I don't know. I I hear that though, and I'm like, I think the intention, the intention goes a long way from the standpoint of like thinking that you can use capital to empower people. Like that's a that's correct. That is that's exactly how the world works. Empowering people through capital, like giving people the ability to like helping them through money. I'm like, yeah, that's a great idea. You know, like even if even if the the situation that you were in like didn't pan out that way so i think it's funny that like it sounds like the shame came from this it was like you didn't know to ask those questions yet right yeah but like you were a baby entrepreneur. It's like you were like in first grade of entrepreneurship. Who you're going to think a first grader is going to know to ask the questions that the eighth grader should know? Like right. no, you were new and here you are. I mean, not that much time has passed. You're still an entrepreneur and now you know that those are questions that we should be asking. Like I think that my husband says this to me all the time because I have a tendency to self-flagellate pretty aggressively where I like will beat myself up over the smallest infractions and like he will always say, "You can only judge your decisions by the information you had at the time you were making them. Right. You just didn't have all the facts. And that's honestly like, I I think about this too. Cause I also was very much a like Sophia Amoruso worshiper. And I think that there's, there is something to this though, that I've been reflecting on more now because I had that very like whiplashy experience with girl bossery where at first I'm like, this is it baby pink capitalism. Yeah. Like me and all my girlies going to get rich. Like this is going to be so great. And then you like, oh my God, this is, you start to dig under the surface a little bit and you're like, holy shit, this is dark. Like there is so much, here. this solves nothing. We're just putting people, like we're just putting pantsuits on women and having them do the same thing. That is like the problem to begin with. So then I rejected the whole thing. And I said, all of it's bad. All of it's gross, especially in 2020 as the girl bosses fell one by one, you had the Sophia takedown. You had. Mickey Agarwal, you had Elizabeth Holmes, America's Girl Boss. You had, I mean, there's like, it was just like clockwork. But now, even with the benefit of retrospect, I look back on that period and I go, we were all a little too happy when they started fucking up. Oh, I completely agree. We were, we were a little too, we had a little too much fun with that. And yep. Did you read Glossy? Did you read the Emily Weiss book? No. So that was interesting. That was a Marissa Meltzer book. She interviewed Emily Weiss for, like, years. And it was framed as, like, it was going to be a tell-all. And we're all like, what juicy shit are we going to get on Emily Weiss? Like, what, did, what has Emily Weiss done that is problematic? And, like, really the extent of it was, like, she had a privileged upbringing and was, like, kind of private about her personal life. And I was like, I'm not getting any bombshells here. Like, but... It was interesting because one of a woman who used to work at Glossy like wrote about the book and was like, "We have to remember that a lot of these things that we are getting down on women for privilege, um, being hard, you know, just being kind of like hard charging managers, being really driven." These are things that, she's like, I can't imagine these things being written about a male CEO. I can't imagine right. a male CEO's book focusing on his privilege as a kid. Like, that's not really where the conversation goes. And in fact, we all idolize Steve Jobs, who was a visionary founder, but was also pretty notoriously a terrible guy. Like, right. not nice to his family, pretty hor- like horrific to his daughter. He would, like, fire people on the spot when they disagreed with him and were like, oh, Steve... You know, really, just the most epic businessman that's ever lived. But like the women, who's uh, to be fair, the allegations against the bo- boss babes were ranging in, in severity. Some of them were very serious right. and warranted. But Others like, were Emily petty. Is not
0: an Elizabeth Holmes. Like those are two. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. You're so right, though. That could be a whole episode in and of itself. Is the
1: girl boss takedowns? But dining I think that
0: that's, of the on the despair we of girl boss.
1: But I, that's where I'm just like, we have to have the same we just have to have these conversations, I think, openly and with humility. And like, I I don't expect myself anymore to get it right all the time. I know I'm going to make mistakes and I know I'm going to glorify people that should not be glorified because it's the water we're swimming in. I don't know. I, I, I hope you're not too hard on yourself, but I definitely have been on that same path of like, I feel embarrassed that I so earnestly embraced something that I now see as problematic. But like, that's being human, baby. That's like, being human.
0: L- okay, so also is your book deal public? Yes. Mm-hmm. And is it is the term hot girl hamster wheel uh propri- like because I was gonna say <sighs> next time I want you to come on and I want to talk about the hot girl hamster wheel. We
1: would have a blast talking about the hot girl hamster. Are are you familiar you- with Jessica DeFino's work? Yes, yes. I she, had her uh own-
0: her subsex brilliant about skincare. Mm-hmm. It's almost like the diet culture of today, right? Yeah,
1: of the anti-aging,
0: where it's like anti-aging. Yeah, that's how I found her. Earnestly
1: get like, what is this dystopian hellscape where if you're over thirty, you're like discarded? But yeah, hot girl hamster wheel. It's basically just the fact that like, which anyone that could see me right now is like, I have highlighted hair, like I am wearing makeup. I don't have my nails done right now, but like I just got the dip gel taken off a few weeks ago. Um, It's it's just, it was something that I started thinking about when I first started trying to get good with personal finance, and I was being more curious about what I was spending money on. And at the time, I sat down and I looked at all my expenses, and like everyone that I was reading, all the personal finance creators I was learning from told me, it's your house, it's your car, it's your food, those are the problem areas you should cut. And I went one by one down the list, and I go, mm. My rent is less than 25% of my net pay at the time. It was probably closer to 30, but it was like, it's fine. My transportation costs low. Like I don't have a car payment. My food costs low. Like I girl dinner it up. I wasn't married yet. Now they're (laughs) high because my husband eats 4,000 calories a day. But at the time, like I was not spending money on that stuff. But what I was spending money on and a lot of money was the Alabama sorority girl upkeep that was like a vestige yes. of my former life, which Beauty was maintenance. It's Beauty the hair. Body it's maintenance. the nails. Yeah. It's the brows. It's the face. It's the tan. It's the wax. It's and like it. And so I started calling it the hot girl hamster wheel because I was like every dollar that I'm spending is functioning as a commitment to spend more dollar in the future because eventually my body is going to reject all of this. I'm going to have to do it all again. And I was spending like more than 10 or 15 percent of my take home pay on my appearance. And I was like, well, that's a problem. Like I did the math on the compound interest calculator and it was like, oh, this is literally the equivalent of like, if I were investing this money instead I would have a million dollars at 65. Like I would be a millionaire if it were not for this stuff. And so Whoa. it was like an eye-opening thing of then the scales falling from the eyes of, oh my God, I'm only doing this to present a certain way to be appealing to men. And like, I'm jeopardizing my own future to be appealing to men. Who cares about like, right. it was just kind of like a, a wow. And so it's not that spending on that stuff is inherently bad. I still spend on some of it more intentionally now, but just like, I didn't want to feel like I was obligated to right. look a certain way or uphold a certain beauty standard at my own direct expense. Like- right. Forget the emotional and psychological effects of being super consumed with how you look. Like, it's having a direct impact on my ability to retire safely. That's
0: so interesting and so true. And kind of the dark side of the beauty and fashion industries is, like, ultimately, capitalism, demand. These companies are benefiting from consumers that genuinely believe they're forever under construction, in need of improvement, and that it is noble to forever chase that gap between who you are now and who you could be or what you could look like or how your body should look. And, and, uh, that's like the hard, yeah, that's, that's an interesting thought because a lot of those things bring me joy, but also mm-hmm. taking inventory of making sure the things you spend on are really adding value to your life. Like hair highlighting for me, I dreaded it. I hate sitting in a chair. I, it takes so long. And like now My I husband just, was I'm shocked like, I,
1: when I told him it's like a four yeah. hour thing, he was like, wait, what?
0: The liberation I felt, letting myself just have grown-out roots that I call ombre, even though they're not. It's just (laughs) grown-out highlights. Like, I can't. I I told my husband, I was like, I have changed so much in this past couple years that I just went on a book tour for the biggest thing that's ever happened in my life. And I without getting my hair highlighted or cut before. And he was like, and? And I was like, no, you don't understand. My hair person canceled on me the day before I left. And I was like, okay. (laughs) And normally I would have, like, panicked. And I know that sounds so silly, but, like... That is an example of a thing that was a huge cost that I di- didn't actually really want to be doing. So
1: true. Uh, something that I'm experimenting with is trying to experiment with more aesthetic choices that just make me happy, but do not conform to the standard. Like I'm kind of playing around with the idea of dyeing my hair pink, or like getting bangs, like something <laughs> it's yeah. like you know when a girl gets bangs, <laughs> like she's going through something. But I'm like. I just kind of want to keep playing around with expressing myself in a way that does not fit that standard. Because I, when I was talking to Jessica about it, we were talking about self-expression and, like, whether or not it's self-expression. And she's like, just to be fair, though, like, what are the chances that your unique self-expression just so happens to be blonde hair, contour, cat eye, and, and plump lips? Like... Oh, it just so happens that my unique self-expression maps precisely to what is considered desirable in today's day and like right. Yeah, you have to be honest with yourself about that kind of stuff. And what message is it sending to my subconscious and my psyche that I feel like I have to look that way to be presentable and acceptable and worthy? Bangs, I could do an episode on
0: on bangs as an agent for change. Like I, I could, like <laughs> I would yeah when your book comes out we'll have to regroup because I love this topic Bands and an agent I,
1: for change.
0: <sighs> I think that it is the ultimate metaphor for how high the stakes are and how much our outward projection to the world lies within our self-worth that like merely changing the window treatments on your face feels so fucking make or break you mm-hmm. only will do it amidst a crisis.
1: <laughs> My friend calls it changing an av- changing the avatar and she's yes. really brave about it. She'll get like weird piercings and tattoos, and like she's just so like I feel like she's just very self actualized. I'd love her to death. Um, but I do have like a lot of my friends are not superficial at all, um, and I notice when I spend time with them, I feel like it course corrects a lot of the like psychological assault that happens to my psyche. when i'm like do i need botox like i don't know should my face move like and then i hang out with them and i'm like i don't need botox i'm fine like it's gonna be fine but yeah that's and that's the powerful thing right is that like we think that these there because there is game theory at play when people are like oh it feels dangerous to change the avatar that's because you've probably received signals your whole life that it's dangerous because people treated you differently when you weren't as hot Mm -hmm. pretty privilege is extremely real so if it feels risky it's because you've received signals it is it does affect your life. So I don't mean to downplay that or be like, oh, it's all in your head. Just have better self esteem. Like, no, we know that pretty people are treated better by society. Thin people are treated better. Like, that's real. But individual influence matters. And like, by being the friend that doesn't wear makeup or the friend that, you know, isn't worried about crow's feet or the friend that's not dying the hair, like, those influences compound too. And like, norms are only as strong as the number of people that are striving to uphold them. So like if your core social group isn't upho- like it's no surprise that I was like really in love with David Yerman when I was in Trinidad in Alabama because I was the status symbol. It's like, th- y- y- we like to think that we're all like independent thinkers and that we all are, you know, thinking for ourselves and have our own opinion. But like, we're really amalgamations of the influences that we're that we're taking in, which is why I like listening to podcasts and like meeting people through this medium, because I'm like, let me up level the types of women that I'm and thinkers that I'm hanging out with. Yeah. I don't know. I'm rambling now, but uh, there's just, I could talk about that. It's such a good topic.
0: I should have brought up earlier. And um, yeah, it's just like so funny too, how hard we can be on each other's appearances and choices for maintenance when we're all a product of the same system, oppressing us into them.
1: And like, it's kind
0: of a good for you, not for me thing where Mm -hmm. like something unnecessary to you is essential to somebody else. So it's like, you can't really have hot takes even about like plastic surgery or when you do the inventory, whatever brings value to you is valid. Like I'm a conspiracy theorist against serums. I think it's an insane (sighs) business model to say that you'll be better off for something in 20 years when you're (laughs) buying it today and you will not hold them accountable. But I get a ton of Botox because it works and way more than any serum ever has. Mm -hmm. Um, But a lot of then there's a total like reverse ideology to that. And like, yeah, serums and stuff as self-care, anti-aging as self-care, I think is just so layered and interesting. And I agree with Jessica that we're going to look back on this and be like, why were we so hard on ourselves about the, simply the passage of time.
1: <laughs> yes. Like, I know I'm going to look back on this period and be like, let women age. Let right, women I have know. wisdom. Don't make women feel like they need to look 19 forever. What are we doing? I don't know. It's just... But again, it's not... I cannot emphasize enough. It's not a criticism of individual choice. It's like the same analogy that you use about like, how dare you shame people for trying to make the boxes we put them in more beautiful. Like. It's not that individual women should feel bad about making that decision. It's just like the the culture that makes them feel like they need to look 19 to be acceptable. Like that is what I right, rail that's against. that's the
0: problem. Some days I want to analyze it. Some days I'm like, eh, there are times when I want to fight and there are times when I just want to curl up in the corner of the boxes I've been put in and establish a habitat because I'm just too tired. Um, and you can be both.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think Jessica has a really nice nice sentiment there, which is- like not everything that you do has to be an explicitly feminist choice. Right. <laughs> no. That's totally. not a good that's not a bar that you should hold yourself to. However, we have to be conscious that we're not recasting everything we do as feminists simply because it makes us feel powerful. Something is not empowering because it makes you feel powerful in a framework where power is not a good like. Does that make sense? It's just we can't be like, well doing that makes me feel powerful. Therefore, it is feminist. It's like, that's not true, which is, it's it's like, as long as we're being honest with ourselves, but it's just, it's endlessly fascinating to me. And I think the more aware we can become, it's maybe cliche to say awareness in itself can can be really powerful, but I believe that's true. Like, I think as my ideas have shifted, my identity has shifted and my behavior has shifted. So like, it has to start with, the exposure to the ideas and even being aware when you're doing it. And now I think twice, a lot more than I used to. And and yeah, behave a little differently. I think about even having a platform and being like, when I show up and my hair's done and I got the cat eye and I look, you know, some type of way, like, is this going to make someone who's watching this feel like that's how they should look too? So I like also really am intentional about going on my platform, looking the way I really look, even Mm. if that's like greasy hair, no makeup, red in the face two day sweatshirt like I want to be as normal as possible because um, I do think that like I also enjoy when I see people's like quote unquote real selves that yeah. is not as man- manufactured but
0: I think that's important I caught myself recently you know swiping a Paris filter on my dog tugboat and I thought you know okay <laughs>
1: You are not gonna Paris tugboat.
0: Oh my god, that's so. He uh, his hair was unruly, and I was like, he just looks fluffier. And I'm like, what's wrong? (laughs) I have problems, but no, like I agree because the other day I did was doing a story, and I was wearing AirPod Maxes, and I hate AirPod Maxes, and I felt the need to say, I know I'm wearing these right now, but don't buy them because like I watched that story, Kate.
1: (laughs) Dude, what a meta example! I watched that story. I saw you had on AirPod Maxes. I go. Maybe I should get AirPod Maxes. And then the next thing you go, don't get these. And I went, oh, okay. Thank God. and Thank God she clarified. Because I'm like, this is a woman (laughs) that I am fascinated by. I want to do what she does. I want to buy what she buys. Like if she has AirPod Maxes, maybe I should have AirPod Maxes. Like, yeah, people notice. People pay attention. Yeah. And I was like, the idea of somebody seeing me
0: wear them and like spending $500 of their hard-earned money on something that I find generally disappointing, but I was using out of necessity. I was like, or like. Yeah, the Dyson Airwrap, I could... Yeah, there's so many things that
1: I'm like... I've come around on the Airwrap. I have. have? At first, I was like, this sucks. And now my hair is at a length where it actually gives it the like blowout Mm. look. I have come around on the Airwrap. However, I would not recommend someone's... I don't think it's worth the money, but I I no longer resent it in the way that I once
0: did. I'm glad to hear that. I'm hoping to have a personal renaissance with mine. I'm I'm looking for reconciliation. (laughs) It's just such a source of... I mean, man, it's it's a real investment. It's a lot of pieces. And um, <laughs> I was really hard to do a lot of
1: under the sink space, yeah. a big cylindrical box. Yeah, it's a lot of pieces.
0: Yeah, I just was influenced by people. I was like, your hair looks awesome. And then I'm like, I think they go to hair by Chrissy and literally fly to Arizona to get gorgeous extensions. And like that's not even their hair, nor is it the Dyson hair app. But I believe them. I, 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 the I fall for the same Chrissy, scheme that, that I- is
1: such a deep cut.
0: And also, I hope you don't mind that I'm not asking you how people should spend their money. I thought it'd be more interesting to have like a general cultural conversation about attitudes toward money.
1: Also, like I can't tell you how to spend it. I'm sorry. Only you know how to spend
0: it. I know you have so much insight and I am going to like dive into your work and- I am um, the queen of the lifestyle creep, though. The more money I make, I will just spend more.
1: Well, I have a portion in my garage, so same.
0: <laughs> it's, it is funny how uh, you never really feel like your life changes that much. You just kind of creep towards spending a little more here and there. That's
1: called hedonic adaptation, which is terrifying oh. that there's a word for it. It basically is just the concept that humans <laughs> are very adaptable. And so you, we can adapt to good or bad. And so if you make your lifestyle nicer, it just kind of becomes your baseline. But the good news is that it can, it's also true of like when you go down, I mean, it's a lot less fun to go down on the, right. the status ladder, but like you also would adapt to that. Yeah, humans totally. are incredibly resilient, but that means, you know, psychologically, you just have to be intentional about where you're upgrading because otherwise it's a slippery slope.
0: I love this conversation too, because one of the goals of my book was to kind of like, contextualize things to look at them from a different point of view that are often negatively coded or sources of embarrassment Mm -hmm. or shame. And you're kind of doing that for me with money. You're like, oh, everyone lifestyle creeps. It's called this. It's a thing that has a term because it is human nature (laughs) and it's not your fault for (laughs) women be shopping, you know? So like, I, that's just even something I appreciate that. It's like, yeah, that, that makes sense that you would just adjust as you go. Um,
1: I'm glad because yeah, it's literally the most like common. The most common yeah. thing it's like psychologically <laughs> guaranteed basically it's it's if you have not lifestyle creeped they should study you in a lab because it's, it goes against like human evolution it's cuz think about it like your brain the hardware that's powering you is millennia old And we did not evolve to be like, oh, that juicy antelope on the range. I should save that for a rainy day just in case. It's like, no, I'm a caveman and I could get eaten by a woolly mammoth tomorrow. I'm going to eat that shit now because who knows? Like, even if you consciously know that that's not true and you know that you should plan for retirement, like the, the elephant that you're sitting on top of metaphorically is driving you toward the antelope and eating it now. So- it's like biologically hardwired. This is like the most common. <laughs> I do you think that back then people were like, Yeah, that's
0: a, <laughs> that's pretty that's a pretty big cave. Looks like the Johnsons are spending beyond their yeah, means. You yeah. know what I mean? Like I wonder when it was more of a barter system, how people would weaponize it.
1: Well, humans are status animals. Like we always we, have. Totally. been. That's why it's like to, to strive for like the ultimate enlightenment of a monk where you don't care about those things is like unless you're going to literally become a monk, it's almost unhelpful to deny that that's a part of you. It's like more helpful to just work with it and recognize it. So and how you signal status to others. That's such a good question. I bet it was like whose caveman wife was hottest or like who had the biggest muscles. It must've been like way more primal than that.
0: Yeah. It was probably primal. How many oxen do you have?
1: Yeah. Or right. It was probably
0: primal and power related with leader. Like people would get in leadership roles who could wield more power over basic physiological needs like food, shelter, Um,
1: which might be why. I've heard you say before that, like, having power doesn't really appeal to you. I think it's just <laughs> no, the dug ring deeper. You're like, I don't really get it. You're like, I don't want power. Like, you look at, like, a Joel Osteen, want you're like, I don't get want it. To- <laughs> so, like, I, maybe there's something there. Because, like, money may, might have, like, a subconscious connection to, like, power seeking in your brain. And you're like, that's not really for me. Yeah. I don't know. Interesting.
0: Listen, my my takeaways are endless from this convo, including I'm now curious if like, yeah, women in the Stone Age were talking shit about their friends for like having too ostentatious of a loincloth. Like, I don't know. (laughs) The the ways we judge people now on the internet for literally breathing, I'm like, I wonder how, if that's inherent to the human condition. Um, Because like when you were talking about um, misdirecting rage toward capitalism, I was thinking Mm -hmm. about how people were like, delighting in um making content farming off of Emily Mariko selling a tote bag that's was like $150. Oh, I missed this. When I see people like getting, you know, hundreds of thousands of views about how like privileged it is for somebody to charge that much for a tote bag. Yeah, maybe overcharging, but I don't know. There is a luxury market. That yeah. is what it is. Like not everything mm-hmm. that's expensive costs a lot to make. Sometimes it's an arbitrary Margin based on status alone. Hermes 101. Exactly. And um, so it's kind of like these people that are not at all responsible for the way the world works are like blamed for participating in this world. Mm -hmm. Or I I feel this. um, All people do is complain about ads. All people... People are so mad if something's on Patreon, but what they're also doing is implying that my work doesn't have value to them. And, you know, uh, yeah. if they don't want me to be compensated for the time I put into it. I need and- to subscribe
1: to your Patreon. Some of my I subscribe to a few Substacks that are paid and it makes me so happy because I'm like, I love that I can with capital support an artist that I think is really cool and that I really love. Like, mm. I think that that mentality too, it is what it is. You can't have it both ways. You can't be, right. I don't want to pay for anything and I should get any, everything for free and art doesn't have value and also be mad that the system is exploitative. Like, we have to be willing to support the things that have meaning to us. I think what happens too is everything's
0: asking you for your money and like Netflix mm. and Hulu and you know, trying to discourage sharing. Everything's just, you know, going up a few dollars and it adds up and you're giving your money to so many things. And I completely get why you wouldn't want to subscribe to another thing that is so valid. Mm -hmm. And it is a problem that every company went to a subscriber-based model and Mm -hmm. they advertised to us. And now we're just being gouged. Yeah, yeah, people are much quicker to cancel a subscription to an artist or creator than they are to like a streaming platform because those are now Mm -hmm. taking up everyone's discretionary income. Mm -hmm. So I'm just I'm so interested to see where like Patreon and Substack and like paid models go, because I think it's one of the best ways that diversified voices can get out there and support themselves in the absence of having connections and industry gatekeepers. But also there is so much complaining around monetization, around ads, around subscribing, subscriber fees that it would, yeah, discourage somebody from being firm and that they deserve to generate income off of their work. There's so much conversation about money as it relates to the influencer economy and how mad people are that they make a lot of money and how, you know, they judge their home backdrops. And I do full podcasts about people's new construction because I cannot wrap my head uh, around how much money people sink into these places but anyway I, well, I could talk to you endlessly but i i think it was a reminder to me too um to really think about who's responsible for what issues and to not take out my anger on the, the individuals just like who maybe i'm jealous of or can't relate to because they're in different circumstances but they're all they're also just like people supporting themselves so Uh,
1: yeah and also there's a really helpful analogy about what a million is to a billion and it's like a million dollars is 11 days a billion dollars is 39 years so even if you're getting mad at mil it's like and there are a thousand billionaires in america there's like 700 but like there's a lot of them and so again yeah it's like the sense of like we're we're sniping at each other's throats but like that's I don't want to say like that's how they want us to be because again that sounds conspiratorial but like in a way it kind of is it's like if we're so preoccupied with like the little class wars of things that are really technically at the margins and we're not noticing the giant private jet above us because that person has a nicer handbag than this person it's like it just keeps us all stuck and I get it because you're right like insecurity is so rampant and everyone feels like they don't have enough. And so obviously that's like when everyone's operating from that place, it's going to get ugly fast and people aren't bad people. They just, you know, feel like society has failed them. In a lot of ways it has. It has. You can't even really blame them.
0: I love that you love nuance because that's all I'm (laughs) ever after is like, I'm not here to give you answers,
1: solutions. I can't help myself, but we can talk about it. That's the, that's the hard part. It's just not black and white. Like capitalism in general is something we all hate now, but we tend to forget that like capitalism is kind of what brought us out of the stone age. Like people, like the fact that people could create value and, and there was incentives in place and like things are a lot better now in many respects because of capitalism, but it's kind of like a cancer in some ways. Like if it just keeps growing unchecked, now we have problems, but like, there are value creations real. Yeah. It's not black and white, which is why, again, I find this stuff hard to talk about on social media when you have to distill everything you think into 60 seconds bites right. that are palatable or, to the masses. And you're like, or but you didn't disclaim this, this one specific <laughs> thing that just applies to me. I'm
0: sorry. No. I'm really impressed at how, what you built, how fast you grew and how- Healthy of a perspective you have on everything. Because I think a lot of people get into the space Mm -hmm. because it's like basically scaling utter nonsense to make money, right? Or it's like a get rich quick scheme. Like I think a lot of people have a personal incentive. Mm -hmm. But I think that if regular people are the ones that are supposed to be using these tools and knowing how to invest and learning these loopholes, then normal people need to be talking about it because the experts work in the financial field. They're probably Mm -hmm. not sharing with the masses all these tips and tricks. Right. And I think it's cool that you're this like hybrid of a person who has an expertise in talking about the field. Mm-hmm. You can make it easily digestible and you can reveal a lot of these things that your average person isn't privy to and deliver it in a millennial you know, social media friendly, palatable format Mm. that gets the information out there to people who need it, like women who we want to be financially independent and secure and on their feet. Um, So I think that that's really cool. Okay, I'll let you go. Where can people find you? When does your book come out? All the things.
1: Oh, thanks for asking. Um, I'm so bad at asking people that, by the way. So I also felt bad when we (laughs) ended our interview and you're like, by the way, I was like, oh, my God. But yes. um, (sighs) So Money with Katie show on Wherever you get your podcasts, Money with Katie on Instagram, moneywithkatie.com. Really, if you type in Money with Katie everywhere, you're going to find it. Um, But if you like podcasts, I I think you'll like our show. It is more highly produced. Like I like the NPR vibe. So that's what I've been doing lately. But this is my jam. So thanks for asking. And the book comes out next year. It'll probably come out in like February or March of 2025. So we're still in the like, what's it going to be called? What's the cover going to look like phase? But I have a rough draft of the manuscript now. So like most of the pain is behind us. And-
0: what every author experiences that I was told. And I was like, that's not going to happen to me. Um, You know, if you ever find yourself in a moment of near breakdown, um, call me because that it it happens to everyone. (laughs) And it's writing and releasing a book is quite hard. And it's a very intense process that like really falls on you. And there are moments where I felt so crazy. I've never felt anything like it in my career. And I say that in a good way because Mm -hmm. um, it's like a really important, interesting introspective process I grew a lot from, but I don't want people to feel alone in it. So if you're ever going Mm, nuts, please, please reach out because that it's just a lot of pressure and a lot of words that you will no longer be able to discern the meaning of because they will run together because you've read them too many times.
1: Thanks for being so
0: cool last minute.
1: (laughs) Oh, dude, no problem. No, this was a blast. I am so happy to get to do it. It's rare that I feel like that I find other people in this space where I just really connect to what they're doing and like want to consume all of it and get excited about stuff like this. I think I get a little jaded from interviews. And so I just was like, oh my gosh, the time flew. Like I was so excited to get to talk to you more just because I've (laughs) been listening to you for now weeks. Um, So thanks for- Yeah. Yes. We spent the whole day together. I (laughs) I love it. All right. Well, you know, when this comes out, if you need anything
0: from me in the meantime, just always reach out. Thank you. Have a good weekend. Thank you. You too. Bye. Bye, Kate. I love talking to people that are like so smart and I'm going to have to look up a few things from that conversation, but I was tracking and I was engaged. And usually I get a little, like I said, I, I have like a weird aversion to, uh, financial related topics unless it's me contemplating the financial circumstances of whoever's bay window i'm trying to pretend not to stare into as i go on my evening walk because the the joke is i yeah i obsess over it but also like personal finance stuff i think in the bro podcast sphere can just be so off-putting you know i just that's i can't do it uh i mean no offense to what did i say uh millions money man hour with with mikey and maddie t I appreciated her approach and her just like scope of knowledge about why this sector is complicated, looks different for everybody, and you have to be careful with the information you're providing. While at the same time, if, this infor- if there is a transparency issue with this information, and it's being like hoarded by certain groups of people. Like, I hate that. And space for just like giving information about like how to play the game. Anyway, you guys, if you want my. Uh, T. Swift, Super Bowl, Tortured Poets Society, Travis, you know, recap and all the things. And it's just a generally unhinged episode that, uh, again, didn't realize I yawned so much during the end, but I, I had so much to say and I was just trying to power through. <laughs> um, go to patreon.com be there in five, rate and review five stars. It makes such a difference. Buy my book, One in a Millennial, wherever books are sold. I don't know, follow me at Kate Kennedy. All the things. All the self-promo. Some, I wonder if these call to actions like matter. Because I'll panic if I forget to do it in an episode. Like, oh my god. I won't get reviews. I won't chart my, you know, show will come crashing down. How will they find me? Um, but like, it's pretty easy. I don't know if I need to remind you every episode. and just do it for good measure. But to quote my AOL away message, quoting Trisha Earwood, what's meant to be will always find a way. And I like to think if you, you know, if you need me, Call me. Find a way. I am sure I've made it abundantly clear over the years. So maybe I'll stop with the self-promo hour. Actually, do call me at 312-379-9676 because that's my voicemail box for Kate Lila. The episodes where people call in and ask questions and they're my favorite and I haven't done one in a while, but I maybe was low on voicemails that I get a lot of the same questions that I've already done because I've been podcasting for six years. So I think I just maybe needed a better variety of voicemails. So if you want to call 312-379-9676, I would love to hear from you. And yeah, God, I really do love that Trisha Yearwood song. What was it? That quote just came to, into my brain. Oh, she's in love with the boy. It was about Katie and Tommy, the drive-in movie parked in the very last row. And I was like obsessed with finding a husband named Tommy um, so we could dance to that song. But not to, you know, like no offense to any um, Tommy's out there, darling name. It's just like, I don't have a default Tommy in my brain other than Pickles. Pickles comma Tommy from regret. Um, So I just always picture him and he's a literal baby. So uh, anyway, that's not relevant. I got to go. Anyway, guys, have a good week. Thanks for listening. Feel free to reach out with any thoughts, questions, concern, feedback. Oh, and if you're in Chicago, I have a show on Thursday, 222, special date final one of the book tour. It's kind of sad. It's the biggest show I've ever done. Very nervous. I'm trying to figure out the childcare stitch so, so like my mom, sister and Greg can come. We'll we'll figure it out. Um, But yeah, it'll be fun. And there's some tickets left, like meet and greets and boxes and stuff are sold out. But it's a huge venue. So I think there are some left. If you want to come, I'd love to see you. Otherwise, I'll catch you next week. As always, let me know your thoughts and I'll let you know mine. I'll be there in five. I swear.